Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome back to this week's episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. I'm your host, Amanda Nally. This episode, Anna Murad, the TIPUC Infant Medical Director, is joined by Dr. Mark Hudak. Dr. Hudak is the immediate past chair for the section on neonatal perinatal medicine at the American Academy of Pediatrics. Today, we discuss how COVID-19 has impacted birthing mothers and infants across the U.S. and the AAP COVID-19 registry that is tracking outcomes from mother-infant dyads affected by the virus. This episode was recorded on March 29, 2021, information may have become outdated since this recording took place. Let's get to it. Hi, everybody. This is Anna Murad, the Infant Medical Director for TIPQC, and we are talking to Dr. Mark Hudak today. So welcome, Dr. Hudak. Thank you for being with us. Hey, good afternoon. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a neonatologist? Ah, all right. Well, that's, that's a story I sometimes tell to resident applicants. So I became a pediatrician because in medical school, it was clear that that was my real area of interest, working with children and families. And it became abundantly clear after going through surgical and medical rotations that that my personality was ill-suited to that. So I gravitated toward pediatrics, not really knowing really what I wanted to do with pediatrics, but just sort of trusting that uh, somewhere along the way, it would become clear. And what I tell residents is that, you know, if you'd asked me after my first month of internship, what my future plans would be, I would say, I have no idea, but I'm absolutely positively 100% confident that I will never, ever be a neonatologist. And that's because my first month as an intern, uh, I got sent out from the Johns Hopkins mothership to the way station out in the country with the level two NICU. That was very primitive. That's what they did with people who sort of came into the residency program at Hopkins from the medical school, which there are like three or four every year out of a class of 18. They would take those three or four people and July through October, they send them out to the beach, the old Baltimore City Hospital. And so you got quite an experience and it was every other night call. It was a census of 20, usually full delivery service, about 2000 a year. There was an attending who would faithfully come in to do rounds every day, and you could go home after rounds after having been up all night, but the problem is that he didn't do rounds until three o'clock in the afternoon. So in the course of that, that those were back in the days where they didn't have respiratory therapists, nurses did not put IVs in, so you had to do all of that. I got very skilled at being able to intubate babies with one hand and hold the tube with one hand and tape it with the other hand. I offered up my left radial artery four times that month to my assistant resident so she could get a blood gas to calibrate the blood gas machine because they only had a blood gas technician there, you know, Monday through Friday from eight to three. 
And so at the end of the month, I was extremely fatigued and not at all interested in doing that again. But, you know, when I did my second rotation that December at the home ship, I realized that I had just an incredible experience that I was really extremely skilled, procedurally skilled in being able to assess priorities within the NICU clinically, uh, skilled in resuscitating the delivery room. And I was able to sort of step back and get into the enjoyment of the care and the enjoyment of the intellectual um, satisfaction that trying to understand the pathophysiology of disease and how to intervene for the improvement of, of these babies' health was so fascinating. So that's my story. And uh, I wound up trading out, you can't do this today, of course, because they've got very strict requirements, but I, I traded out some of my outpatient rotations for more NICU. So that's what happened. That's an amazing story. I can't imagine if we asked to trade out more for, for more NICU now. I don't think that would no. go over, but you're right. <laughs> So we all know you from all of your work on the neonatal abstinence AAP guidelines, which have been so incredibly well utilized in our perinatal collaborative, but we're actually going to talk to you today about a little different subject, and that's the AAP COVID registry. So would you like to go ahead and tell us a little bit about that, how it came to be? Sure. So last March, February, March, I was in a position as chair of the AAP section on neonatal perinatal medicine. It became very clear quickly that this was going to be a major issue in this country, you know, by late February. And there was already some areas of the country, New York City, Seattle, et cetera, that were coping with this issue, you know, with a dearth of knowledge, I think, about the perinatal implications. In March, there was some initial guidance that AAP put forth. Uh, we had a group of people that included Jim Cummings, uh, who's the chair of Coffin, myself as chair of SONPM, Karen Popolo from the Committee on Infectious Diseases, David Kimberlin, I think past chair of that committee, and some others who worked on some guidance. AAP got out actually very quickly. That was very conservative because we really didn't understand what the risk to the babies were, and the guidance was sort of in the direction of the cautious meter. There was a lot of difference of opinion from agency, organization, country to country about what the appropriate procedures were, but it was pretty clear there was a dearth of evidence-based data on which to make a decision. So at that point, as an initiative of the section, we decided to try to stand up a registry that would compile cases across the country, invite people to volunteer to submit information, and promise to make that information available, you know, on a weekly basis to the investigators and the hospitals that provided it. So it was structured in a way that would inform best practice, specifically compiling information about maternal demographics, uh, maternal medical condition at the time of presentation for delivery, you know, how the infant was cared for, where, what kind of isolation environment, whether or not the baby was roomed in or not, whether or not there was direct nursing or not, and then compiling information about the testing on the baby. So given all that, the, the hope was that we would quickly amass some information that would be helpful to clarifying some of the points of difference between the different organizations. 
And that's how the registry came to be. And, you know, I think that along the way, we've reached some clarity on some of those issues, which is good. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. It's been incredibly helpful to have some numbers backing up what we're doing. So approximately how many dyads have been enrolled at this point? So as of yesterday, when I did the statistics, we had crossed 8,500. We were up to a total in the active registry of 8,715 dyads. That represents an increase of 298 since the prior Sunday. And then we have another 1,300 dyads in the resolved arm of the registry. So over 10,000 total. What sources, um, I assume these are all hospitals that are reporting to you, approximately how many hospitals do you have that are actively participating? So we have 296 hospitals that have been activated, and we probably have about 240 of those hospitals that so far have sent information in. There are about 50 or so hospitals that haven't submitted anything yet. Some of them promise that they will get their information in, Um, you know, we'll see. We've got some hospitals that are put in a lot of time and effort on this. Some hospitals, over 200 dyads entered in already. And I think my sense is after sort of doing a lot of emails back and forth and so forth, that everybody is committed to getting all of their dyads in at least through the end of March. Some places are playing catch up because other things, of course, have happened. Many centers will continue beyond March due to the fact that they are now seeing cases that they hadn't seen before. Also because I think everybody is a bit concerned about the implications of the more highly transmissible variants that are out there, you know, B117 and then others from South Africa and now Brazil. So the story on this has not been written. And with best epidemiological estimates that like the B117 is much more highly transmissible and causes much more severe clinical illness. Those may very well have implications for perinatal transmission and illness in babies. We just don't know. So the jury's still out on the variants at this point. There's no no selected data yet. We we won't know because people don't test for what kind of variant mother might have. We don't ask for that information because it's still very selectively performed at the state level. But I think the trend, the temporal trend over time will will be telling or, or not telling right. about that. Hopefully not telling, right? Hopefully not telling, right. <laughs> um, that would be the best scenario. Um, are most of these centers that are reporting academic centers, are they mostly urban? Do you have a pretty good representation from across the United States? You know, it's really surprising. I think we've got a very fair representation in every way. We have academic centers that are participating. We have a lot of non-academic centers that are participating. We've got urban centers. We've got rural centers. We've got suburban centers. We've got centers in 46 out of the 50 states, the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. We've got hospitals that are primary sites of delivery for, you know, the Native American population. We've got hospitals in Hawaii that you know, take care of a lot of Hawaiian Islander and other Pacific Islander populations. So we really have a real robust scattering of hospitals. When I looked at what the delivery services of these hospitals were among the 296, looking at the number of births per year that they had, these hospitals basically accounted for about 20% of the annual U.S. births. So I think that's a pretty fair representation. I would say so. That sounds like a a really nice sample size, if you will. Can you talk a little bit about the demographics of the patients who are enrolled? The interesting thing here is that consistent with what's been reported in the adult population, 
from early on, there was disproportionate representation of disadvantaged populations. The Black African-American population was disproportionately high. In our race designations, we have a category for other, which I suspect is at least partly, most of the time, African-American. And then for ethnicity, we basically just asked about Hispanic versus non-Hispanic. And early on, there was actually a majority Hispanic representation. That has dropped off now, but still we have a pretty good size of Hispanic patients. Probably about 40% of the patients are Hispanic origin. Um, it's dropped because now with the spread of the disease to you know non-urban, non-crowded areas, that has dropped off. But it was really profoundly striking initially that this was um, going on. Not surprising given, you know, the adult demographics of the time. But the virus is an equal opportunity virus and you get exposed, you're going to wind up getting disease regardless of who you are. Right. The virus doesn't pick. Nope. Doesn't. So what did you learn about the infection rates for the babies who were enrolled? Yes, we were really surprised. You know, I think that knowing how highly transmissible this disease is and knowing that even a relatively brief encounter between adults, one being infected, even asymptomatic and the other not, that there's a very good chance of transmitting the disease. At the start of this pandemic, we were really concerned that mothers who came in with active disease who were infectious would be transmitting this disease to their babies because you know, if you're sick and you're coughing and you're taking care of a baby, it doesn't matter how much you try to protect the baby if you're doing it. You can mask, you can hand wash, but your contact is so prolonged and so intimate that it's just hard to conceive that that baby is not at high risk for, for getting infected, right? The initial data that came out of China was not helpful in this country because in China, they adopted the philosophy that they would actually scheduled these mothers for cesarean sections. And speaking to the people in China, they did this for a reason. I mean, basically, this was a disease that was uh, mortal and that really had devastating effects on healthcare providers. And so when they wanted to deliver a baby, they wanted to make sure that they could do it in an organized fashion, that everybody on the team had the appropriate PPE, that it was done under the best circumstances with minimal risk to the healthcare providers. And also, you know, for the baby, they would immediately take the baby and isolate the baby away from the mother for 14 days. And so no surprise, they found that those babies didn't get infected. That doesn't apply to this country where people weren't doing C-sections just because the mother tested positive. And the sequence of events of delivery is sometimes not well orchestrated, as you know. Baby comes at the baby's time, not at the provider's time. And so we really didn't know. We were, like I said, pretty cautious about it. But what became clear very quickly is that at least in the hospital, very few of these babies tested positive. And none of these babies, at least in the first few days of life, develop a clinical illness that consistent with the SARS respiratory infection. And furthermore, even the preterm babies who were exposed, who stayed for longer lengths of time, did not suddenly get sick at day four, five, six, seven with respiratory infection. So that was reassuring. Looking at the strategies for infection control, 
there was no difference in the rate of positive testing in babies who roomed in with their mothers versus those who were separated. In fact, I think the rate was, the most recent numbers are, one of those rates is 2.1 and the other rate is 2.2. They're essentially the same. So no difference. But it is puzzling. What that? What does that mean? Is that colonization? Is that infection? We don't know what that means. And we don't know where that might have acquired. Could it be a late sort of in utero acquisition? Could it be perinatal, which is contamination, infection because of exposure to blood or amniotic fluid or vaginal secretions during delivery? That's probably very, very unlikely because no one's been able to culture a replicable virus out of any of those sources. There was a worry about breast milk, which I think we don't need to be worried about breast milk as a source of infection anymore. Although that wasn't intuitive because there are other viruses that are transmitted by breast milk, such as HIV. I do think that some of this is probably postnatal acquisition, if not most of this is postnatal acquisition. But like I said, the babies don't appear to get sick. The other thing that's happened, of course, is there have been some studies that have come out of New York City, you know, where they've had a couple hospitals do follow-up on on mothers and babies who've been discharged, where the mothers have been positive, looking to see if the babies get sick at home. They don't. And Meg Parker and her group in Massachusetts, in their collaborative, they took all of the babies that they submitted to the registry and did either phone follow-up or medical chart follow-up on those mothers and babies and found that there really wasn't any signal that there was a SARS-related illness in babies up through, I think, 28 days of life. So I think that's good news and rely upon our great volunteers in this project and ask them to check up in a tiered priority fashion on these mothers and babies by phone or by medical records if they're in a system where they're lucky enough to have been able to capture you know, this in a population health way just to seal that. But we now have, I think it was 147 infants out of our almost 8,700 that have tested positive over time. So that would be the largest series of infants who've tested positive to really look to see what the consequences of that are, at least short term. And I'm curious, how many of those were test positive at 24 hours and then yeah so symptoms with negative testing yeah after. you know so this the the report from Dr. Sanchez Luna who sort of heads up the Spanish registry probably know those results pretty well but they sort of looked at their experience there i think they had over 500 babies who were born to mothers who had tested positive for SARS near the time of delivery They found that 14 babies who were tested like at 24 hours on were were positive out of the ones they tested, but 13 out of those 14 were negative by 48 hours. And, And conversely, they found out that there were babies who had tested negative at 24 hours. Uh, I think there were a handful of babies out of 144 tested negative at 24 who were positive at 48. So again, you know, what does that mean? I think if you test positive and then you test negative, you can't really say that you've got a um, active infection going on. You either have transient colonization or whatever you want to call it, or you've got a false positive test. If you have an initial negative test and then you, you wind up subsequently testing positive one or more times, then you've got persistent virus, whether or not you want to call that an infection 
becomes sort of a philosophical question then, right, as to whether or not you've got any clinical consequences. So what we see in our study is pretty much the same thing. We have, we have a number of babies who, similar to his study who tested positive, who then cleared on a subsequent test. Not every center was able to do the two sample testing at 24 and 48 hours as you know, the AAP guidance had suggested doing resource limitations. Some centers early on had only a certain number of tests they could do. So maybe a single test was all they could do on a newborn rather than two tests. So issues with timing of discharge, a lot of mothers and babies being sent home before 48 hours just to get them out of the hospital sort of thing. But we do have a lot of information and we do have babies who tested in the NICU who tested negative for the first couple of days who were positive on day seven or day 10. We do have 12 babies who, for whatever reason, were tested again after they went home and tested positive. That's another category of infant that we'll be interested in hearing from the centers. Well, what happened that you tested, that those babies were tested? There must have been some clinical reason for that. So, um, you know, we'll see. But it sounds like the take-home message is that the risk for transplacental passage is incredibly low, if not negligible. Well, it seems to me that the transplacental, so this is, this is again, an interesting question, right? So, so we test the nasopharyngeal specimen, and that's because, you know, in the adult world out here, in the postnatal world, it's transmitted as, a, as an aerosolized um, or, or um, droplet transmission. And the virus takes up residence in the respiratory tract. And you will culture it out of the respiratory tract. Or you'll find evidence on PCR that is there. The natural history is that seven to 10 days later, you can't do that anymore. The virus is gone from the respiratory tract in terms of its being able to be cultured, although the PCR may be positive for a long time. But who's to say in a transplacental infection, why would the virus go to the respiratory epithelium? Yeah, good point. If it's hematogenously spread, it could take up residence in other organs and uh, not get seeded hematogenously to the respiratory epithelium. So even if you did have a transplacental infection, I'm not sure that anybody really knows that you're required to have a positive NP specimen. You might have other ways to identify that infection. But if you posit that it is, then you can say your maximum rate of possible transplacental infection is less than 2%. I do suspect that a lot of these cases were acquired after birth. So what have you noticed about the preterm birth rate during COVID and your number of preterm infants were enrolled? Well, right now in the total population, we have about 15 and a quarter percent preterm rate, something like that. The national rate is 10.23% for a number of births less than 37 weeks. That's a palpable difference. Is it because we have some sort of a bias of hospitals where if you looked at these hospitals in 2019, would they have had more than a 10.23% rate of preterm births? I don't know. We're going to have to try to sort of see if we can do some sort of sampling to, to tease out that issue. I suspect that this is a true, truly higher rate. One of the things that we, we are going to do is sort of look at how this rate trends over time. My impression, and it's just an impression right now, is that some of these deliveries, these preterm deliveries were decided by the medical team because of concerns about the effect of active COVID infection worsening in the mother if she continued her pregnancy or concern that this infection was 
somehow going to harm the fetus or some evidence of fetal distress. We're much wiser about how to take care of the pregnant mother, much wiser about being able to facilitate proning and those sort of things, uh, much wiser about not automatically jumping to intubation and ventilation for these patients. So, so some of the early increase in preterm births may have been iatrogenic in, to that extent, right? And, and if you face the same situation today, you might be able to get that mother to term. I think that's a very good point. How many things have changed over the course of the pandemic? How much we have learned? Right. But, you know, even when I go back and I look at the data, because as you know, we had pretty extensive, pretty robust data collection on maternal indications for delivery and fetal indications for delivery. And we had a option that centers can check that delivery was done due to concerns about maternal COVID disease for the mother of the fetus. So even going back and looking at those data and trying to account for the excess preterm rate, number of preterm births, there were still about 50% of the excess preterm births that we can't account for because of delivery due to COVID. So I think there's probably something real to that, especially since so many other studies have identified that the rate of preterm birth and mothers with, you know, who test positive for COVID is higher. The people that we collaborated with from the UK have found the same. Marian Knight found the same in her very first observations. So is there something about a mother getting COVID that stimulates her preterm labor? Is there something that COVID uh, affects the placenta and causes more fetal hypoxia that sort of stimulates the decision to intervene for that reason, which may not necessarily be COVID illness related in the mother? Lots of things we can look at over time and uh, sort of see if we have any hypotheses that we can generate about that. It'll be fascinating to see what we learn going forward. It's great that we have this type of data collection to help with that. Can you talk a little bit about the other health disparities that you've noticed within the data? You touched on that a little bit with the demographics, but any more to say about that? I think, you know, the first blush of the, of the information is that if you look at the rate of preterm birth in the different populations, you do see excess in the disadvantaged populations there. So there is continued I think disparity we see in that outcome. What we still need to look at, of course, is you know whether or not there were any disparities in the care protocols. Was there a difference in terms of your racial background, your ethnic background, in terms of whether babies were separated or not, whether babies had access to nursing or not? That gets a little trickier because whether institutions put into place policies that differentially affected populations but you don't necessarily know what the baseline is, right? There could be, you know, in a hospital population, there could be like in our hospital, which is mostly indigent, we're thrilled that we're able to get the maternal nursing by the time of baby discharge from the well baby nursery up to 50%. It had been 10% for a long time. So we need to look at it through those lenses too, but got a wealth of information to look at. I think that that the Meg and her group in Massachusetts have looked at that through an ethnic lens and they were not able to identify in their hospitals any effect of maternal background in any sense on how she was cared for, how the baby was cared for, which is good. Fascinating. 
What other lessons in general have you learned from the registry? And you've touched on a few things that you hope to learn going forward, but just to close out the discussion about the registry, any other things that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I think the most impressive thing about this, and I say this in every talk I give, but it's, it's, worth, it's worth really emphasizing, is that this was a effort that was all volunteer. You know, the neonatal community had a real concern about this. And we're struggling with what to do in terms of best practice. Many people saw this as a way to contribute to identifying the appropriate questions and developing the, the right information to be able to move forward. And it was just extraordinary how people stepped up and, and volunteered to do this. I mean, it's a lot of work. It's abstracting data, submitting to a computer, and dealing with queries that I send to say, please fill in the blank here, sort of thing, going through the regulatory process to allow this to happen. So it's just amazing that people sort of came together to do this. They don't get anything out of it personally. I mean, they will get publications and so forth and be part of the National Perinatal COVID-19 Registry Study Group, which is valuable. But I'm just, it's just, it's so rewarding to work in our field, as you know, with the people that are in it, because they really have a very different overall focus, I think. Um, you know, you work with kids, you work with babies, you work with mothers, you've got a different sort of perspective on life. And so it's not, I guess from that extent, it's not surprising that this happened, but, but it's really remarkable. And I'm so privileged to be part of the community that pulls together in times like this to work collaboratively together. I'm always impressed with our volunteers with TIPPC, the amount of volunteer hours they put in. And it's really for the good of the mom and the baby. I mean, they really are looking out for that. I'm going to change the subject just for a second, because I'd like to have your thoughts about the COVID vaccination for pregnant or breastfeeding women? Yes. Well, first I'll give you my unblemished thoughts about vaccination in general. It is amazingly positive thing. The data are, there haven't been clearer data ever about a preventive measure like this. It is astounding to me, given that, and I don't know what you see in your center, but there are a good number, a good percentage of healthcare professionals, whether they're physicians, a relatively low percentage, or advanced practice providers, more, or nurses and respiratory therapists, even greater percentage, who for some reason have said they don't want to do this vaccine. It makes no sense. So get that off my chest. Um, with respect to pregnant women, I think that there is really no good scientific reason to postulate why there would be a greater rate of a very, very, very low adverse event in pregnant women or in babies who might be breastfeeding. There's no reason. And I think as data are accumulating, the early data from the studies where they found out after the fact that the mother was pregnant, right, which always happens, and followed those mothers out and found out that they didn't have any increased incidence of adverse effect. And the vaccine was very effective in them as well. And there were no repercussions to babies. There's now much more organized information, a larger volume of, of women. The message is 
that gosh, if you're pregnant and you get COVID, you as a mother are at higher risk for a lot of things, including death. We have found in the study that the maternal death rate overall is 18 times higher than the maternal death rate in 2018 where COVID doesn't exist. That is huge. I mean, it's not, it's, you know, 250 out of 100,000, but still it's 18 times more right. than the baseline rate. Yeah, your risk of COVID is much worse than any risk of the vaccine. And then the, the sickness in mothers, and if you're a pregnant mother as opposed to a non-pregnant mother of a similar age, you're much more likely to be hospitalized, wind up in an ICU, wind up on a ventilator and dying. So pregnant women are a high-risk group and they should have access and take advantage of being vaccinated, period, end of story. Love it and completely agree. <laughs> Thank you so much. So Dr. Yet, we really appreciate your time today. I think this has been incredibly informative. And, and we you mentioned the volunteer hours. We, we appreciate all the hours you've put into this database. It's informing our care. It is helping to reassure us that we're making the right decisions and we're taking care of these moms and babies. And we really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Well, Anna, thank you very much for inviting me. And listen, you do wonderful things in your Tennessee Collaborative. And I understand that your term rotates every couple of years, but you've done a wonderful job and put on a tremendous conference. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TIPQC. TIPQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.